Great. Well, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Um, today, we are very honored to be highlighting an article, and we have a guest uh, for the February 2020 issue of Neurosurgery, and that's Neil Malhotra. The title of his paper is entitled The Risk Assessment and Prediction Tool, or RAPT, Wrapped for Discharge Planning in a Posterior Lumbar Fusion Population. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Neil, can you just introduce yourself, and then I'll introduce myself as well, since we're both guests on this yeah, so I'm I'm Neil Maholtra. I'm a associate professor uh, and the associate program director in the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. A large portion of my practice is caring for patients with uh, spinal disorders. Great, great. And uh, my name is Mike Wang. I'm a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Miami. I'm so honored to be uh, chosen to discuss this with Neil because Neil and I share this common interest about um, spinal outcomes research, and, and Neil is a real expert in using really high technology, and I think AI too, right? AI for these types of applications. That's correct. Thank you for saying that. Great. Well, Neil, why don't we get right into your study? So tell us, tell us about what this study is about and maybe even a little about what inspired you to, to go down this line of research. Yeah, thank you for asking. So I, we were very interested in trying to determine if we could better predict uh, a patient's outcome insofar as the need for post-acute care prior to their admission for surgical intervention in a neurosurgery department. We thought about building our own instruments, and we had some, some data we had validated of our own, but we discovered in the literature in the orthopedic surgery population that the risk assessment and prediction tool, the RAPT tool, R-A-P-T, had been quite effective in predicting the need for post-acute care. As many of our listeners will, will recognize, the ability to predict that is becoming increasingly important and powerful as we talk about bundled payments for the care of patients, um, hospital utilization, sort of lack of beds. So could we better utilize our beds and plan for our patients' outcomes further? Patients are very clear that, that when surveyed, they want to have a good set of expectations for what's going to happen to them after surgery. Are they going to need rehab? Are they going to go to a nursing home? Should they be stocking their refrigerator with, you know, prepackaged foods? Um, so we assessed the risk assessment and prediction tool, and we, we built it into our EHR called, it's a non-proprietary tool that we built into Epic called Epilog so that we could prospectively uh, run these queries and ask ask this risk use this risk assessment prediction tool with our patients. So we were able to do that. We prospectively enrolled um, ultimately 508 patients, and then we excluded those under 50 because the orthopedists had specifically excluded those in the assessment of this tool, and it had not been validated in that population. You know that you're right. You highlighted why this is important to our audience, and the RAP tool you're using is that something that's available and has been studied before? Can people get it online? I mean, tell us about it the tool. It is, yeah. So the RAP tool is widely available. So we we didn't develop this. We were just validating its use in our population. Um, so it is widely available. Uh, there is, to my understanding, no cost whatsoever for the use of it. One can build it into their own uh, EHR or do it on paper, uh, as we initially did. And it's, it's um, been very well validated in multiple orthopedic subpopulations as well as general, whole institution general populations. I know you know how to program and code. So for those listeners out there who aren't so savvy with this, if you're going to incorporate this into Epic, is, is it straightforward or do you have to have a competency in software programming? Well, I would say to do what we describe in this paper, you would certainly need to have 
a fairly significant competency to put things in context. We've worked on the initiative around this work that 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 this work employed for nearly 10 years. So so the 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 entire scope of the project probably not easily completed. But if you if you're just talking about implementing the wrapped tool, um, one could fairly easily do that with an epic analyst at one's own institution. Awesome, awesome. So tell us about the results of the study and what you found. Well, so it's pretty exciting in that uh, certainly uh, in our population uh, and our specifically the subpopulation of patients under spinal intervention, that the tool was really quite effective at predicting before a patient, during the patient's preoperative history and physical, so within 30 days of surgery is when this tool was implemented, um, based on the data that we acquired then, we discovered that the tool was highly effective in determining um, either of the two outcomes we, we focused on in the study. And there were there were two two areas of focus. One, home disposition uh, or the need for further post-acute care and that combined sniff and rehab uh, or nursing home and rehab. And then the other model we looked at was the individualization of home versus subacute nursing versus rehab. Uh, and we found that uh, the higher score that you get, the more likely you are indeed to go home. The lower score that you get, the more likely you are to need a nursing home or rehab facility. And was that true across, you studied a number of different surgical procedures, right? Was that Correct. true across all procedures? Did it apply? It was true across our entire population. And in fact, we won't discuss it extensively here, but we've actually tested this in a wider array of neurosurgical subpopulations, including brain tumors and uh, cervical spine interventions. And it's consistently pretty effective at predicting the need for post-acute care or not. So it's six questions, right? And I'm, I, I'm just looking at what you had in your table. So what's your age group, the gender, how far you can walk, what gate uh, aid do you use, like a walker, uh, do you use community supports? Uh, such as a meal on wheels, and then the last was, will you live with someone who can care for you, right? Those are the six components, right? That's correct, yeah. Was there one that was more predictive than another, or they, are they all critical at some level? I'm glad you asked that question. That And that was, I didn't want to get to it too early in the interview, but if you talk about implementing just one thing in your center, you know, you don't want to do the entire wrap, you don't want to build an entire EHR protocol, you just want to ask one question. It's just their capacity to walk prior to surgery. Walking zero, one, or two blocks in every model we studied predicted your, your immediate post-acute care needs. Really? Okay. So that's important to know. Now, across, the, you know, whether it's microdiscectomy versus a T10 to pelvis, is it is it similarly mm -hmm. useful, you think? I, I do believe it is. Now, we haven't, we weren't powered in this study to study, to assess the individual uh, procedures. But my anticipation, as you know, the less the surgery, certainly the less risk or less need for post-acute care. But within the population, I would anticipate those patients with lower scores having higher needs. You work at UPenn, right? So That's you're correct. Tertiary Academic Center, right? That's correct. So, you know, I always run into the situation where I'm talking to guys who are in a smaller community hospital or maybe they work at an ambulatory care center. Um, do you think that the results that you have here would apply to those specialists as well? Can it be applied, generalized across centers? So I, I really do believe, is, so I, I think what we would find if we were able to compare our group versus patients going to smaller community centers, I think that the patients at those smaller centers might have a, a smaller proportion of low-scoring patients. Um, 
However, I do think the scoring parameters would be just as effective in the same way that it's been demonstrated to be effective across orthopedic populations. I see. I see. Yeah, for other. So what kind of procedures was it studied in, in orthopedics? So for orthopedics, they've done hip, knees, shoulders. Uh, I don't think it's been applied to hand surgical procedures, but it's it's been applied both in large populations, so for population management at a hospital administrator level, and then what a surgeon might be interested in is individual case types like, uh, you know, single uh, knee replacement. But it's, the literature is quite extensive, and I would encourage uh, the listeners to, to, to look to some of that literature to see how powerful this tool is. And, and so you you studied up to February 2017, so that's 22 months ago, right? That's correct. How is yeah? What's what's changed? Have you applied this and, and found more about how you could change how you run the operations of your hospital? Yeah, so we've enrolled uh, about 6,400 patients at this point. At the time of the publication of the study or the submission of this paper, uh, we were just around 500. So, so now we're really digging into the nitty-gritty to try and determine if we can use this as a more effective tool for the following. So, for example, can it be used for patients under 50? We're studying that now. What I'm really interested in is can, can it be used effectively for hospital bed management? Our institution runs at about 100 and between 95 and 105% capacity. So the idea around this now, and the question that was proposed to me and I'm now studying is, we're curious to see if we can so effectively predict a patient's outcome such that if a patient is such high risk for sniffer rehab using the cut points developed by our statisticians, should we send them to sniffer rehab early rather than just keeping them another day and then another day and another day with the hope that they're clear, clear physical therapy, knowing that that's unlikely to ever happen? And the flip side of that, if a patient is very high scoring, rather than send them to rehab or nursing home ever, just keep them, you know, assuming they haven't had some sort of complication in the hospital, keep them as long as they need because they're so likely to go home that just get them through the acute phase and get them home. This will, I think, uh, be a, uh, a significant role player for us in, from a bed management uh, and a patient satisfaction standpoint. Yeah, that makes good sense. And, and I wanted to ask you about the financial implications because, uh, you know, obviously when, when people look at this type of paper as surgeons, we, we see it from the patient care side. But how are the, the bean counters, how are the C, uh, CFOs and the CEOs of UPenn looking at this uh, and the kind of data you're collecting? Because I'm sure they're very excited about the data you're getting. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, the from a hospital standpoint, the DRGs for these patients are established and they are what they are and they're previously no negotiated with the insurers and, you know, and, and Medicare and Medicaid services, of course. But um, where this becomes a powerful tool to that point is, you know, using a bed for less time than it would otherwise be used. So a patient who ends up in uh, a SNF or a nursing home 15 days after admission, if you can send them on day three because there's, it's unlikely that you're going to convert them to a home discharge, then that's a bed that's opened up for another patient. I think that's important when a hospital is running at capacity, um, and it's also important from a patient you know, satisfaction perspective. Now, when I look at it, I'm so cynical, right? I think about it from the perspective of, wow, you know, is this kind of scoring going to be used to uh, ration care or do something of that sort? I mean, if you, if you say, wow, you know, a, a certain patient, like for example, when they were going to bundle hip surgery, right, and cap the, the DRG, if you will, at $25,000, anybody going to rehab is costing the system money, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Do you ever worry about that issue? I know it's a policy statement, and you're just doing scientific research here. I do worry a lot about that, but I do believe we have to start asking these questions so that we better understand the course of care of our patients. And I think it's incumbent upon us as scientists to, to ask these questions and to, to seek these answers so that we can better guide our patients as to the course of their care. I constantly have the concern that you bring up, and I, I think your, your, your cynicism is, is well warranted that there will be someone who will try to use this to either generate or, or more revenue or reduce you know, billing or requirement to pay. But my hope is that if we effectively study this, then we can also make the argument for doing just what's best for the patient. Yeah, controlling and, and knowing and owning the data is, is a part of that. And you've done a great job of that uh, uh, at uh, UPenn. So I, my hat's off to you. That's amazing. Um, what, what are you doing now? What's the next step with all this? So it sounds like you've got a huge patient population, much more much more heavily powered to study all, as you said, under 50, or this study is for over 50. What, what are the next steps? I mean, this seems like a rich area for research for the younger people out there. Yeah, so, so this is certainly very interesting to me, and I continue to pursue this. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I'm very interested in, in uh, predictive metrics of outcomes for our patients. I think that we fail to give our patients the most ideal guidance on what they can expect the coming months and year to look like. So my interest is in pairing this data now with patient-reported outcome measures, such as the EQ5D or uh, PROMISE um, or ODI, for that matter, so that we can determine whether those outcomes are affected by your preoperative score. Um, and then further down the road, one of my big interests that we've been pursuing here at UPenn more recently is seeking out disparities in care, um, determining the impact of socioeconomics on outcomes uh, and leveraging this data to determine some of those answers so that we can try to eliminate those disparities. Do you, do you see any limitations in this? It, to me, it seems like a very simple scoring system. Are you building out a RAP2 or like a Malhotra score for discharge? Like, I mean, it seems so rinky-dink to me. It seems so basic, right? It's, it's so basic, and that's sort of the beauty of it, because I was building out uh, a scoring mechanism, the, the Penn scoring mechanism, when I discovered this, and we applied it, and I've been so impressed with how effective it is at predicting that need for post-acute care that I think the logic of developing something new is less in the presence of something that, you know, to, to reiterate, this is not my scoring system. I've only taken it from another population and validated it in our own. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm, you know, when I read the paper, and again, for those of you who are listening, uh, this is going to be released on the February 2020 issue of the Red Journal of Neurosurgery. Uh, it really is an impressive body of work, and I think, Neil, this is one of the first papers I've seen this in the neurosurgical literature. Yeah, I, th I think we're the first to look at this, although many have looked at predictive metrics for outcomes. But, but I think to your excellent point, the simplicity of this is its appeal. I think that anyone can adopt this at the very minimum. Adopt the one question, what is your capacity to walk these, you know, X distances, zero, one, or two blocks, um, you know, would be a powerful tool to, to manage the care of our patients. Now, we've, we've both been doing research on ERAS and ERAS and spine care, and I know it's a passion of yours. Um, are you incorporating this into it? Because for us, part of our Gen 2 ERAS was to try to uh, not prehab, but it determine where people were going to go after surgery, and this seems like it's right up that alley. 
Yeah, we are. We are. I don't want to get too much into it because you are our best competitor, but <laughs> we are work. We we are working on pairing this data with with that ERAS. So so and if you think about it, it's just the path that you know I've been so impressed that you've been pursuing over these years. You and your colleagues at Miami, um, we are chasing the same thing. Can we? really have the best handle on the entire course of the patient's care. This is the early predictive space, the preoperative space, your ERAS work, uh, and we've, you know, been honored to, to, you know, to follow along with you and, and, and pursue the ERAS path as well for post-operative care, um, really getting the whole picture for the patient laid out um, so that we can, you know, maximize improvement and maximize the quality of each patient's care. Yeah, I mean, that's really the central theme, right? We're all trying in a very complicated time to get get the resources that people need to get through these very complex surgeries and, and difficult times for the patient. I'm, I'm sure the uh, patients are appreciative. Do you, do you share this information with the patient? Do you talk to them about it, or is it just something that's sort of um, – is it a two-way street, I guess, in terms of information on this? Well, so on this, I've been I've been fascinated by how many patients have brought this to my attention that they've seen some of my work in this space. That patients are reading more of the scientific literature than I would have anticipated. Um, but what we what I'm really interested in is really providing for patients the patient reported outcome measures piece um, and pairing it with some of this and showing this to patients. So we've been modeling different types of reports that we could give to patients um, to extend the discussion so they understand why we do the things we do. That's great. That's great. Is there anything else you would like to add for the listeners of this podcast? Uh, I, would, I would only say that I, I would encourage the listeners to, to look at this, this body of work, certainly not just my own or even, even your own, but this space to see how they can enhance the care in their population. There's an increasing body of, of work based on really solid data that allows physicians in each center to start to develop a roadmap for their patients uh, that I think gives us the opportunity to, to further optimize care, which is what we need to be doing as a, as a specialty. Yeah, I like it because it's it's like the beginning of some real science to the um, to the outcomes world with spine, which we we badly need. So my hats off to you. Well, Neil, thank you for your time. Uh, it's amazing work, and please keep up the good work. We look forward to a lot of future publications from you in this arena. And and remember, February 2020, check it out in the Red Journal. Mikey, thank Mike, thanks thanks so much for hosting this podcast. I really enjoyed uh, having this chat. Great. Take care. You guys okay with that? Yes, thank you so much. That was great. Wow, Mike, you're amazing. No, you're, you're, you guys are amazing. You, you have crushed that. everything. Man, you're super efficient. You're right to the point. That was awesome. Did we get all the points you wanted to put out there? Yeah, those are the things. I mean, I, I really wanted to you, – you actually, <laughs> you actually opened up the door so I could talk about the disparities in care piece.